If you like, Mr. Stevens, I could bring in some more cuttings for you. Thank you, Miss Kendall. But I regard this room as my private place of work, and I, I prefer to keep distractions to a minimum. Would you call flowers a distraction, then, Mr. Stevens? Hello and welcome to the Booker Prize podcast with me, James Walton. And me, Joe Hamier. And today we're presenting the third and final in our series, The Booker at the Oscars, by focusing on what is also our monthly spotlighted book for March. Whoa. It's <laughs> The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Shiguro. This one's a bit different in the sense that we're looking at a Booker winning novel that didn't actually win any Oscars, even though it was nominated for eight, including Best Picture. But for our purposes, uh, very luckily, it lost out to a film that's also based on another book winner and one that we covered at the very beginning of this series, Schindler's List. So there's a very nice circular feeling to what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, we don't just throw these podcasts together, do we? Carry on with what it lost to. We're still in Booker territory. I think we're going to be okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so what it was uh, nominated for, not lost in, James, take a more positive attitude. Um, eight categories, including Best Picture, um, best Actor for Anthony Hopkins and Best Actress for Emma Thompson. But we are going to begin, as we have done in these past two episodes, with the novel rather than the film. So, James, can you tell us what we know about Remains of the Day author Kazuo Ishiguro? Yeah. Uh, well, for one thing, he had quite a significant birthplace, Joe, uh, Nagasaki in Japan, where he was born in 1954, nine years after the second atomic bomb had been dropped on the city. And in fact, he said in interviews that as a young boy, he grew up thinking that every city must have its own bomb. But then, when he was six, his father, an oceanographer, was invited to do research in Britain, and the family moved to Guildford. Uh, at the time, they all expected this to be a temporary stay, but as it turned out, it wasn't. And Ish didn't so much as visit Japan again until 1989. After leaving school, he got a job, uh, wait for it, as a grouse beater on the Queen Mother's estate in Balmoral, where he earned money for a three-month trip hitchhiking around America with his guitar, because at that point what he hoped was that he would be signed by a record label as a singer-songwriter, uh, which he wasn't. So he returned to Britain, studied English and philosophy at the University of Kent, and then got a place like Ian McEwan and Rose Tremaine before him on the creative writing course at the University of East Anglia. His first novel, The Pale View of Hills, was enough for him to make it onto the uh, Granter magazine's uh, 1983 list of best young British novelists that we often mention. I possibly even bang on about, but that's not surprising given that it also included that list. Martin Amos, Julian Barnes, William Boyd, Rose Tremaine, Pat Barker and Salman Rushdie. Ishiguru, incidentally, was the youngest person on the list at 28. He was also technically not British at the time. Uh, so not a young British novelist, still a Japanese citizen until the following year. Now, uh, A Pale View of Hills was about a Japanese woman living in England, but looking back on her life in post-war Nagasaki. His second novel, An Artist of the Floating World, shortlisted for the 1986 Booker Prize, was then set wholly in post-war Japan and narrated by an elderly artist looking back on his career in which he'd been on the side throughout the 30s, he'd been on the side of Japanese militarism, he'd been a sort of propagandist for it. And uh, that made him a great hero at the time, uh, but it makes him a great villain now. He's faced with the fact that that Japanese militarist project ended up in both military disaster and moral disgrace. Uh, though he still finds it understandably hard to admit that he dedicated his life to the wrong things, and so essentially blown the only chance to be alive that he'd ever get. And next came The Remains of the Day, which Ishiguro has often said was essentially a rewrite of An Artist of the Floating World but this time set in post-war England, but with the narrator again torn between the comforts of self-deception and the possible horrors of self-knowledge. Uh, it's uh, again set in the mid-50s. It's again looking back to the 30s in a way that Joe will uh, 
remind us all in a minute when she uh, summarises the plot. Um, but just to bring us up to date on Ishiguru, his books since have included Clara and the Sun, The Buried Giant and Never Let Me Go, which was on what this very podcast decided was the best ever book of shortlist of 2005. But maybe even better for him, uh, who knows, than being on the what this podcast decided was the greatest ever book of shortlist of 2005. In 2017, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. So, as for the remains of the day, it won the Booker in 1989, and a very strong shortlist included three future winners, John Banville with the Book of Evidence, James Kelman with The Disaffection, and Margaret Atwood with Cat's Eye. There was also Rose Tremaine's much-loved Restoration, and Sybil Bedford's Jigsaw. Uh, tell us about the book anyway, Joe. Well, in a way, the book isn't very hard to summarise. Uh, Butler goes for a motoring trip. Thank you. Um, <laughs> if you... Well, I've been rambling on for a while, Joe. I'll give us more than that. <laughs> yeah. The longer version is that the book opens on our main character, Mr. Stevens, who is the butler at Darlington Hall. Darlington Hall has recently been taken over by an American gentleman called Mr. Faraday, who is an Anglophile of sorts. And Stevens is doing his very best to work on a reduced staff plan. I think at that point he's only got four other members of staff to run this huge house on. Yeah, in the um, glory days, there would have been dozens, wouldn't there, in the 30s? Yeah. Oh, I should mention as well that our, our present day setting is in 1956, and this is important. So Stevens is a man who is very concerned with butlering, or more specifically being a good butler. He says, a great butler can only be surely one who can point to his years of service and say that he has applied his talents to serving a great gentleman, and through the latter to serving humanity. Those are two very lofty goals. Indeed. And so the minor errors, as he calls them, which have been appearing in his work, are deeply distressing to him because, after all, they interrupt his serving humanity. We can debate that point later. Mr. Faraday, at some point before the novel began, had recently suggested to Mr. Stevens that he uh, take some holiday, given that he, Mr. Faraday, would be going off to America for a short trip. He suggests to Stevens that uh, he take his... I think it's a Ford in the book, isn't it? Yeah. Although it's a much posher car in the film. It's a much more sort of yeah, yeah. photogenic Daimler in the film. Yeah. <laughs> but still a, a very lovely car by yeah. uh, 1956 standards. And, and go on a motoring trip. And Stevens uh, begins to think that actually he's just gotten a letter from his good friend and Darlington Hall's former housekeeper, Miss Kenton, uh -huh. in which she expresses uh, what Stevens thinks of as unmistakable nostalgia for Darlington Hall. So he says to Mr. Faraday, I think I will take you up on that offer of a holiday and the offer of the car and the free petrol. And I will go to Devon. Yeah. Yeah. I will go to Devon and seek out Miss Kenton and bring her back as a housekeeper. And this way, the staff plan will be restored to its Yay. former glory. And he does so. He takes a very lovely trip and we hear all about it. But as Stevens undertake, undertakes his um, motoring journey, which he is very pleased about because it gives him cause to reflect on the glories of English countryside. Uh, um, I like the bit where he says he might be away for as much as five or six days. Yeah. Incredible. I know, wow. Stevens is the OG workaholic. He begins to reflect on Darlington Hall's previous owner, Lord Darlington, and the interwar period, which I suppose Stevens would consider a kind of his personal sort of glory days during which Miss Kenton was at Darlington Hall and Darlington Hall was the scene of a kind of European interwar politics. The problem with Lord Darlington is that he has recently died disgraced for being possibly essentially a Nazi. 
which rather puts Stevens's idea of serving a great gentleman and to that effect serving humanity to shame. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I suppose, yeah, we can we can pick up on finer points of the plot as we go along. But just overall, James, do you do you like the remains of the day? I, I, I do adore the remains of the day. Mm. Um, not controversially. I don't think I'm going out on a <laughs> going out on yeah, a exactly. massive limb here. Nobel uh, Prize winning yeah, author of Booker right. Prize winning. Remains of the day in good shock. Um, <laughs> but um, it's an, an, an astonishing book, and I suppose a book about far more than it appears to be. Yeah. Uh, for one thing, uh, as Ishiguro has often said, it's not really about a butler. So it's it, it, he's picked a sort of caricature of an English butler who, who speaks. It, it's it's written in in, in Stevens's own voice in a very almost a way that owes quite a lot to Jeeves in the P.G. Woodhouse books. Very precise. He you know, uses the word partake instead of eat, commence instead of um, start, you know, association football for football. Puts quote marks around any modern expressions, you know, holding them at arm's length like pep talk or when uh, Mr. Faraday says he'll foot the bill for the gas, you know, that's uh, an astonishingly American expression that he thinks deserves inverted quotes and again holds at arm's length with a certain amount of distaste. Can I ask you, yeah. uh, maybe this isn't a question we ask each other enough, how do you feel reading it or rereading it? <laughs> rereading it, I thought, in a way it was more, a few things really. You, it's very hard to recapture because I did read it when it absolutely first came out. In fact, mm -hmm. in fact I reviewed it when it first came out and um, you realise it's quite risky, the opening, because it's basically some rather boring bloke fussing about staff rotors. I mean, now we know it's a <laughs> now we know it's a classic, and we're willing to go through it. But the book discloses its secrets quite quite slowly and quite subtly, and and the amount of emotion that's going on. I mean, it's it is that brilliant thing of that I'm always very interested in is how how do writers do the unsaid, mm -hmm. seeing as they can't say it. Mm. So Stevens is saying his thing. Meanwhile, us and Ishiguru are sort of eyeing each other. We're together saying, you know, this this guy's this guy doesn't really think this, does he? This guy we know this guy's a this guy's a bit ridiculous. This this can't no. So it it, it does that and obviously the, the two things that he has to face up to are whereas he is with Lord Darlington either a waste of time, a bit like the artist of the floating world guy, you know, or was it actually was he on the side of wickedness? Mm -hmm. And then secondly, uh, did he blow it with Miss Kenton? Both of which I think we'll return to. Uh, what did you reckon to it? So this is like my fifth or sixth time reading The Remains of the Day. Not purposefully. <laughs> no offence to Kazuo Shiguro. Who accidentally read it five or six times. Yeah, because it comes up a lot. I think I last reread it a couple of years ago for Booker Prize purposes that ended up falling through. And I can't remember the times before that, but I know the first time I read it, I think I was 16 uh -huh. or something. and. Don't get me wrong, it's still a magnificent book the sixth time around. But I think you start to get a little bit irate with the kind of voice that you were talking about with Stevens being very, you know, there's an indeed every three there sentences. His sentences are very sort of um, somehow clipped and polysyllabic at the same time. Yep. So you, it's still fascinating. But by the sixth time, I think you're sort of like, I know, Mr. Stevens, I know, like get to the point. That being said, it's the sixth time I've read it. And by the time you get to the book's final scene, I still cried. Yeah. So, There's that weird thing. You could argue that you know, Stevens isn't a very good writer. And yet The Remains of the Day, which he narrates, is a brilliantly written book. Yes. So we should get into it. Yeah. 
at a deeper level and maybe start well, that's what with, we like to do <laughs> and start with the setting and background because it's fairly important i mean darlington hall for mr stevens is essentially a kind of i suppose a device for his memory for his feelings uh, for it, it's his entire world and then england as a whole i suppose i think Mr. Stevens feels that his work is extremely patriotic work. There are a lot of points at the beginning where he talks about sort of continental butlers and maids not being quite up to scratch. Haven't quite got the emotional restraint required, do they? They are foreigners. No. And the terms that Mr. Stevens uses to describe great, so-called great butlering, are not unlike the English landscape that he motors across the duration of the book. So very early on, he says, the English landscape at its finest possesses a quality that the landscapes of other nations inevitably fail to possess, greatness. Yes, that, that, that's right. And, it, uh, and, and in fact, he says, in comparison, the sort of sites offered in such places as Africa and America, <laughs> though undoubtedly very exciting, would, I'm sure, strike the objective viewers inferior on account of their unseemly demonstrativeness. Yes. But, of course, the twist to that is he's never seen these places. Yeah, no, he never has. And never been to the continent. He didn't know what... He hadn't actually been to Devon before the events <laughs> of this book. <laughs> he spends a very long time talking about how um, he spent many fine hours flipping through the work of a, a writer called Miss Simmons, who has written numerous volumes on the delights of the English countryside. Mm -hmm. And this is about as far as Stevens has ever travelled in his life, because he does say later on at a certain point that he never, he never had need to go out to the world because the world used to come to Darlington Hall. Yeah. And that, in a way, is sort of why this kind of background is so important. I mean, on two counts. The first is that the point at which the world was coming to Darlington Hall was the... 20s and 30s and uh lord darlington at that point i suppose is what you would think of as atypical classic english countryside lord who after the events of world war one feels quite shocked at the way that allied nations are treating germany and considers it deeply unpatriotic essentially un-english to kick a foe while they're down the, his words. I think he says something to the effect of once you've got a man on the canvas, you don't beat them no. further. I think what Ishiguro does very interestingly and subtly is that always at this point, the patriotism will arise out of jibes at other countries. So like the one that you read from Stevens about America and Africa, I think in the interwar years, it's the French. It's the French that yeah. everyone has I mean, a problem I mean, with. To be absolutely fair, there was the French who insisted on the savage treatment of, of yes. Germany and the, the Treaty of Versailles. Now, this is all like massively interesting in context of Stevens's situation in 19, 1956 because Mr. Faraday is American. And there's this really fascinating point in the book where he invites friends round to look at the house. And he comes back rather dismal after their visit. And he says... They kept calling the house mock this and mock that and the statues were mock Tudor or whatever. And at one point they suggested that you might not even really be an actual butler. He says, this is a genuine grand old English house, isn't it? That's what I paid for. And you're a genuine old fashioned English butler, not just some waiter pretending to be one. You're the real thing, aren't you? That's what I wanted. Isn't that what I have? And it's a fantastic question because I suppose it encapsulates 
a lot of Stevens's conundrum in the book, which is, was any of it worthwhile? Was any of it real? Now that it's all fallen apart, now that it's just sort of for sale, is there any value left in it? No, that's right. So in fact, that, that bit where Faraday's friends say, you know, is this actually a real butler? It's partly because they've just said, I believe you used to serve Lord Darlington, and he said no. Yes. And the longer the book goes on, the more he denies having served Miss Lord Darlington. And the question is, is it because he's ashamed of having done so? Yeah. Or is it as he claims, quite plausibly, you know, because Lord Darlington's died in disgrace, that will only ask, cause people to sort of slag off Lord Darlington, which he doesn't want. <laughs> but But actually, I think he is ashamed, isn't he? And can yeah. I say two things about 1956, yeah, yeah. which I think backs up your idea that Darlington Hall is England, yeah, um, which is 1956, the year of Suez, yeah. Suez Crisis, which, uh, apologies to any historians listening, but could simplify by saying... Uh, Brit- shit show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, certainly a shit show. Uh, Britain tries to invade <laughs> Egypt, just like in the glory days of colonialism, and America says, no, you don't, pulls the money. Yeah. Uh, so it's complete humiliation. And uh, as a result of which, two things are clear. One... If they hadn't realised before, America is now in charge of the world and not Britain. Yeah. Which is obviously what's happened in Darlington Hall. And secondly, um, I think, this is often said anyway, that this was a time where the British people realised had absolutely incrovertible evidence because of the way Britain has pretended that it was intervening in Egypt for different reasons. But that was proved to be a lie. So basically, our rulers lie to us. Yeah. So can we trust our rulers, really? Yeah. So he's facing the question of, was Lord Darlington trustworthy? Yeah. And worthy of all that trust that he heartbreakingly poured into him, you know. I mean, it's really interesting reading this book. Or, or even, I suppose it's interesting that the book is set so far in the future and then reading it even further into the future. Because, you know, at, the, at that point, at the, in the interwar years in Darlington Hall, you know, Lord Darlington is holding all these very impressive sort of international conferences. And Stephen's... Stevens is very concerned in keeping the house running smoothly. It's something we'll come on to in a second. But, you know, he, he keeps insisting about how great Lord Darlington is. But at the same time, there's literally a Nazi official walking in and out of the house. Well, <laughs> well, well, eventually, I, I would I just... I, well, I, I suppose is, at that time it's Weimar government, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. I think that's, the, that's a big difference between the book and the film. So the book is... The big conference where Stevens is responsible for it going really, really smoothly so that so that all these international guests are welcome. Meanwhile, his father's dying upstairs and he... Um, ignores it. <laughs> yeah, he kind of ignores it and then finishes that evening with his fa- father dead having been more or less ignored. Maybe he just pop up every now and then, uh, feeling very proud of himself, like he, that was one of the great days of his life. In the, in the film, that's in the 1930s where the Germans are Nazis. Yeah, in yeah, the book, yeah. it's 1923 when... It's the Weimar Republic, and there is a, there is a case to be made that the Germans are being mistreated, and, 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 and even a, a liberal case because James uh, John Maynard Keynes wrote a book called The Economic Consequences of the Peace about Versailles in 1919, uh, saying that you know the punishment we're placing on Germany is too ferocious in itself and will lead to further com- wars. Yeah, I'll put a different one to you. Okay, at that conference, there's a character called Mr. Lewis who uh, I suppose in the film is sort of a composite of Mr. Lewis, an American dignitary, and uh, Mr. Faraday, some rich dude who's taken over Darlington Hall. But Mr. Lewis, a former congressman, ends this conference on a rather spectacular note where he's been trying to upend the conference because he doesn't believe in its aims, number one, and he doesn't believe in it in principle. And Stevens does hear his speech towards the end, a speech in which he says, his lordship here is an amateur. The days when you could act out on your noble instincts is over. And I mean, Stevens is constantly hearing, at least 
partial phrases that should lead him to question whether Lord Darlington, you know, who, who again is merely an English country lord, should be the one to steer yes. international politics. But, but, but an interesting phrase, that, which I hadn't noticed really until, until you just read it now, noble instincts. Yeah. So in fact, both Stevens and Darlington are, are obsessed with their dignity and, and their honour and so on. And in a, in a way, both of those things turn out to be fatal flaws for them. The longer the book goes on, the more he sticks to his desire for peace with Germany and being nice to Germany, even after the Nazis have taken over. So he, he gets kind of sucked in. Mm. And he does become a full-on Nazi uh, f f um, at one point when um, black shirts start to arrive. They're the British Union of Fascists. And after their meeting, he sacks or gets Stevens to sack two Jewish maids. But I think it's kind of interesting, a, 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 about a year later, admittedly, and way too late to ever get them back, he says, what happened to those Jewish maids? I, what I did was wrong. Mm. And he's about the, in a book in which everybody <laughs> keeps doing things that are wrong. He's about the only person who ever admits it. So I guess overall what we have is a kind of sense of um, Darlington Hall's metonymic device when... Do you, to, it, do, you want, do you want to unpack that, Joe, for the non-academic listeners? It, it stands in for a lot of other things. So when the, when the house changes is when Stevens changes. Or when something bad is going on in the house, other characters tend to suffer. But interestingly, Stevens does not. So, you know, as this conference that we've been referring to a lot is going on, Stevens's father dies. As, um, you know, prospects of war get clearer and clearer in the book, Miss Kenton's aunt dies. The Jewish maids that you mentioned get sacked. And yet Stevens is the only character in this book because the house is still in its glory days who seems to keep saying, you know, those were the best days of my life. And he, he, he knew it then as well, or, you know, tried to know it then as well, even if his father was dying <laughs> just, just a few floors away. <laughs> it does bring us to this really interesting concept, though, uh, of, of why Stevens should be so okay all of the time while all of these horrendous things are happening or to, to whatever degree he notices them being horrendous and it's because Stevens has a, an incredibly precise sense of what makes a great butler it's dignity which I think you've already mentioned he explains this through a story that his father told him about a butler in a household in India who goes into the drawing room and discovers that there is a tiger there then very calmly goes um, out of the room to find the house's owner and says, you know, so sorry, there's a, there's a tiger. Can I borrow a gun <laughs> and just, just shoot it dead? And then there's a very interesting phrase once the shooting has taken place. He goes back to the house's owner and the butler in the story says, there will be no discernible traces left of the recent occurrence by that time, by the time you'll be eating dinner. And Stevens really takes this to heart. Of course, what that really means is something quite big has happened and I've just swept it under the rug. I did notice some symbolic moments in the book. But that, that, yeah, you're right. That, that's a very good one. There's a sort of tiger in the room. Yeah. <laughs> in a way. And I've just sort of, I've gotten rid of it very, very quietly and will never mention it again. <laughs> yeah. It is quite interesting, though, because I think that that is not what most of us would recognise as, as dignity, essentially, like a repressed sense of self. There's another character later in the book who um, Stevens sort of comes across as he's motoring through the countryside and he stops in a village for the night. A guy called Harry Smith, who thinks of dignity more in terms of, I suppose, one's basic civic and civil right. I think the phrase he uses is, you can't have dignity if you're a slave. So he defines dignity through its opposite. 
And I suppose this is something that Stevens has to wrestle with through the rest of the book. Yes, Whether it... the dignity that he's sort of based his life on in a very professional sense does him any good in a personal one. He's obsessed with the nature of dignity. And in a way, part of that dignity is being able to put up with indignity, isn't it? I mean, I, I, so he, he will, will never show himself. He talks about the great butler. Is, when he's wearing his clothes, he is utterly inhabiting the role of a butler. Yeah. And he will only ever be himself when he's alone. Otherwise, he is 100% butler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and his human side, irrelevant. Uh, and then that meets that, that more democratic idea of dignity. As we heard in the clip at the beginning of this episode, and as you mentioned, to Stevens, this idea of dignity is crucial to butlering. But then, as you say, this is about so much more than butlering. Oh, yeah, can I have a go at this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing about, about him is he takes his job, we would regard, way too seriously. Yeah. You know, a tiny bit of silver not polished is an unbelievable cataclysmic disaster. And yet, in a sense, uh, you know, isn't, isn't that what we all do? I kind not, of not me, partner. <laughs> no, 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 not not silver. But you know, you're, you're writing a novel. You will consider that that novel is the most important thing that could ever. You know, I, I, at the moment, I think the Booker Prize podcast very, very important for the world. <laughs> yes, and, and, massively. And that, and that, please keep subscribing. <laughs> yeah, but 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 that we we all take our jobs more seriously than they probably objectively yeah are. But so we should. You know, we might as well make the best podcast we can. You might as well write the best novel you can. Yeah, but actually, you know. <laughs> In the total perspective of things, I mean, I think perspective is an important thing in this book. So, so yeah. there's this brilliant thing where he addresses the book to you. He keeps talking to you. Yeah. And like, who on earth is this you? So, um, you know, it starts off quite gently. As you know, finding recruits of a satisfactory standard is no easy task nowadays. I undertook for myself a number of duties which you may consider most broad-minded of a butler to do. Yeah. And then they just get, they get more and more e extreme in a way. So you will not dispute, I presume, that Mr. Marshall of Charville House and Mr. Lane of Bridewood have been two of the great butlers of recent times. Now, so of course, we, we, we don't know what the hell he's talking about. So, but that is one really good bit. Uh, how often have you known it for a butler who is on everyone's lips one day as the greatest of his generation? to be proved demonstrably within a few years to be nothing of the sort. Well, obviously, the answer for that is never. We've never, no, no, we've never known that. We know no, 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 what you're talking about. But again, that's a, a way in, in which he's all of us. So my daughter, my teenage daughter, will say, you know, Dad, everyone's listening to this now. And nobody's listening to that anymore. And she just means her and her mates. Yeah. But, you know, it's not just teenagers. We do it. You know, I've done my share of middle-class London dinner parties, and we have shared assumptions that are essentially... Unexamined certainties, aren't they? That, that everybody thinks this. So I, I think you're right. But I think this idea is kind of complicated on two levels. The first is that you say, you know, it's, it's sort of funny how Stevens doesn't have a sense of perspective. But why would he in context of what he's doing? So my favourite example of what you're talking about is the fact that he will really very often compare his work to that of a military general. He'll say, the butler's pantry, as far as I am concerned, is a crucial office, not unlike a general's headquarters during a battle. And then something will happen, like a German Weimar, eventually Nazi official called Herr Ribbentrop, starts visiting the house fairly frequently. And, and at one point he shows up in a foul mood. Um, but then he sees the silverware and he remarks that the silverware is very well polished um, and seems to be in a better mood. And... Um, <laughs> Then we get this hilarious bit from Stevens where he says, you know, I, I'm not trying to say that I changed international politics, but Lord Darlington himself suggested that the silver might have been at least a small factor in Herr Riventrop's mood that evening, <laughs> you know? So it's very difficult for him to have like a kind of sense of perspective when, in fact, you know, in a way he's kind of not 
wrong? Like, what's going on in Darlington Hall does have a huge impact on global politics. Yes, okay. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> but, it, but it's also, it is no different from the rest of us, is it? I mean, it is a metaphor. I mean, it is a yeah. metaphor. So, so when I, when, when I, you know, that you, the fact that you will understand who the great butlers are. Yeah. I mean, I find it very hard to imagine that, you know, there's people who don't know who Mott the Hoople are. <laughs> or, or, or in fact, that there might be people who don't know who Kazuo Ishiguro is, you know? That, that, it, it's very hard to yeah. have a proper perspective. Like, to to what extent are we supposed to find Stevens ridiculous? And if he's not ridiculous, then he is either extremely naive or massively ignorant. Or worse, he's completely self-aware and just sort of acts in his own best interests or delusions anyway like that it it brings up like a really interesting question of the lens that we view him through in a way we're all sort of self-aware and have glimpses of mm-hmm. uh the truth about it and we suppress them and we all as i say take our job i mean i you know write tv reviews i can spend 10 minutes thinking should this be a comma should this be a semicolon this is this really kind of matters yeah and you have to act as if it matters because that's your job but it doesn't, it, it, maybe it doesn't really. But let's just pause for one thing that people have often said about the book, which is, okay, we can sort of see why, why he might, well, basically, why does Miss Kenton love him? She, seem, she does seem to love him. Ah, uh, here we come on to Miss Kenton, the myth, the, yeah. <laughs> the woman, the myth, the legend. Yeah, go on, get on to, get on to Miss Kay. Why does she love him? Um, I don't know. I think maybe first we should say something about Miss Kenton. We've been talking about Miss Kenton for a really long time, and we should maybe talk a little bit more about what she's like as a character. Go on then. Well, she's basically like Mr. Stevens's polar opposite <laughs> in a way. Well, no, she believes in the importance of her work and um, she's a very, very good housekeeper. But she's got a, a rich inner life and a rich sort of emotional bandwidth and emotional has she, has she intelligence. Though? Yeah, I think she does. I mean, there's a point very early on in the book, you know, Stevens brings his father to Darlington Hall to act as an underbutler. And Miss Kenton is the one who sees way before Stevens does that um, his father is failing. And there's that really interesting exchange with them where she's, because Mr. Stevens Sr. is an underbutler and Miss Kenton is a housekeeper in the pecking order there is that housekeeper comes out on top. Oh, yes. She calls Mr. Stevens Sr. by his Christian name, William. And the way that exchange happens is it kind of starts by Miss Kenton bringing a vase of flowers into Mr. Stevens's main character Mr Stevens says uh office and she kind of sets it down thinking that she might brighten the place up a bit and he goes no 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 we have to be utterly professional here on that point stop calling my dad William yeah okay no you are right she is more emotionally intelligent even the bit where his father's dying now comes to think of it she says she's the one can I close his eyes yeah yeah and she's the one who says look you really should go and see him you might you'll regret it if you don't there's um this really heartbreaking line at some point in the book where she just she's kind of breaking down and she says to Stevens, "Why, Mr. Stevens? Why, 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 why must you always pretend?" Because she can't, like she doesn't do that. She's obviously very professional, but she has what most of us would call boundaries, or what we have been calling a sense of perspective. Um, um, can I just throw in a little, little one on my "We're all Stevens," which yeah, yeah, which is why, why, why must you always pretend? I mean, I, I think well, there's a, that line of Kurt Vonnegut's "You, you are what you pretend to be, so be careful what you pretend to be." Mm. And I think, in, to a sense, in a sense, we all pretend the role, don't we, most of the time until we're I don't know. So 
in a way, he's like us. And also, although I'm I'm willing to concede that um she's a, more emotionally intelligent than Stevens, it's not setting the bar enormously high, Joe, is it? Oh my god. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so so in context where, where of the, the book, okay, I'll phrase it differently. In context of the book, Miss Kenton represents what a really rich inner life can look like. I think it's richer than Stevens, but there's one bit where a maid who she's sort of trained up and taken a personal interest in, and in fact, which is a great act of emotional intelligence. But yes, and he's back. She's backed him against Stevens, who didn't really want this maid, possibly because she was too pretty. That's a little sign of his maybe having a heart in there somewhere, or or, or some loins in there somewhere. But anyway, she trains this uh, maid up, and then this maid falls in love with a footman and wants to get married. And um, Miss Kenton is very. Um, Sad about this. She thinks that she's throwing away a promising career. Ah, uh, okay, no and now, and now she's thrown it all away, all for nothing. So, so the idea that you know, why would you want to be? Why would you want to get married for love when you could be have a top career as but a housemaid? I have a theory about this. That's quite Stevensy. I have a theory about this, and it comes down to why does Miss Kenton like Mister Stevens? And I think at that point, it's really important to note that Miss Kenton has kind of been. <laughs> subtly but still coming on to Stevens for a matter of years now and Stevens has like blocked her at every point you know no flowers in my office no Christian names maybe like a 15 minute cup of cocoa at the end of the day but we're going to be discussing the work rotors and by that point I think she's feeling extremely frustrated I read her disappointment in the maid's name is Lisa very differently because what she says is she's bound to be she's bound to be let down Lisa is bound to be let down and she keeps repeating this in front of in front of Mr. Stevens. And I don't know, I just feel like as as a woman myself, I have spent a lot of my time trying to like tell the person I really like something really important without actually saying it. So yeah. I read that as a sort of obviously men are bound to let you down. I've been flirting with you for years now and you've okay. let me down. Okay. Maybe as a bloke I didn't notice that. But uh, I, I did even I noticed later on when she's saying, right, I'm off to uh See, so see a man now tonight, Mr. Stevens. What do you think about that? And he says, oh, have, a, have a nice time, Mr. Stevens. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then a bit later on, he's asked me to marry me, Mr. Uh, Mr. Stevens. Um, and uh, what should I do? And, uh, oh, you have my, my, my warmest congratulations, Miss Kenton. I hope you'll be very happy. And so, so yes, so she is just banging her head against the wall. But I still know what, why, why she wants to bang her head against that particular wall. Is, so what's your theory? I must say, I think, I think this is a, a slight... Um, this is definitely a question over the book, I think. Ishiguru, when in, asked about it, says, you know, he's, who knows about the mysteries of human attraction? He has seen <laughs> many, many people fall in love and he's no idea why. Really? Yeah. Uh, and secondly, he says, you know, it's a slight desert island thing. They're the only two people there, really. Yeah. So there's that proximity. So, yeah. uh, and then, and then he actually says the fact that they squabble all the time, which some people say, well, they just quarrel all the time. And he says that, you know, that's meant to be like in a, a screwball comedy or, in Jane Austen or, or, or in Shakespeare where people express their love through quarrelling. Yeah, I think that Ishiguro's um, desert island thing isn't very far off from my theory, actually, which is just that Miss Kenton expresses this repeated sort of horror of ever ending up alone. So there's a kind of point after the Jewish maids are let go. Um, she She's sort of takes a stand against it and she says you know I warn you Mrs Stevens if if these girls leave the house then I shall leave with them and then she doesn't leave and about three months later Stevens brings it up to poke her gently going you know haha you didn't leave I was right and she quite touchingly comes back to this shocking act of pettiness by saying whenever I thought of leaving I just saw myself going out there and finding nobody who knew or cared about me 
That's all my high principles amount to. I just couldn't bring myself to leave. And I think she has this real, quite human actually, fear of just ending up alone. So Mr. Stevens is like the only option in the house <laughs> to latch herself onto because the moment another option arrives, Mr. Ben, she goes off with him. She sort of goes off with him, but she only goes off with him after saying to Mr. Stevens, look, if you're not careful, I'll go off with Mr. Ben. Mr. Ben's asking me to marry well, She's invested a lot of time into Mr. Stevens. This is girl math, James, you know. <laughs> you don't spend years chasing after a dude just to let it go in like five minutes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, think that, I think we have our definitive answer there. Should we leave, should we leave the book there for now and yeah. end the part one and come back in part two with the film, yeah. The Remains of the Day? Hello, welcome back to uh, the Booker Prize podcast uh, with me, James Walton. And me, Joe Hamia. I can't believe we're doing a second intro. Oh, yeah. I'm, the old, I'm me, Joe Hamia. Did you hear the surprise <laughs> in my voice? That's what the punters expect. Um, and uh, as you know, we're doing Remains of the Day um, uh, for our series, The Booker at the Oscars. We've just had a discuss the book and we're going to discuss the film now, including the endings of one of the contrasts is the endings of both of them. So it is a spoiler alert. I mean, the 30-odd years old, but you may not have seen them, you may want to watch them, and that's absolutely fine. So in that case, just when we come to the end bit, um, we'll leave it till right at the end. So um, if you want to just duck out then, I suppose that's all right. Um, so let me just tell you a little bit about the film. Uh, it's a Merchant Ivory production, um, which means made by Ishmael Merchant, who is the producer, and James Ivory, the director, who were life and business partners from 1961 to Merchant's death in 2005. In that time, they made 44 films. Uh, perhaps most famously, uh, literary adaptations of, um, well, among others, E.M. Forster's Howard's End, A Room with a View, and Morris. Uh, but despite the name Merchant Ivory, it was actually a partnership of three, with Ruth uh, Prower-Jabala as the screenwriter of almost all of their biggest hits. Uh, Ishmael Merchant once said, it's a strange marriage we have at Merchant Ivory. I am an Indian Muslim, Ruth is a German Jew, and Jim is a Protestant American. Someone once described us as a three-headed god, maybe they should have called us a three-headed monster. Just pause there, actually, just to note uh, Ruth Prower Javala, who has um, got some book of form, as we like to we like to notice that note that in the, well, I do anyway, <laughs> you know, rolling her eyes a bit there because she was nominated for the best adapted screenplay for the remains of the day, but has a unique Booker achievement. Joe, she is the only person ever to have won both the Booker Prize and an Oscar. Well, Ishiguro himself almost came close. Yes, a couple of years ago with oh God, what was that film Living, with Bill Nye in it? Yes, Living, which was a rewrite of a Japanese film. Film, yes. which actually is in the way that Remains of the Day was a bit of a rewrite of The Artist of the Floating World. Uh, in 1994, Merchant Ivory had already had a fair amount of Oscar success, including those writing awards for Prowess Javala and a Best Actress Gong for Emma Thompson in Howard's End the previous year. And uh, Thompson was back as Miss Kenton in The Remains of the Day, with Anthony Hopkins as Stevens, who here gets the first name James. I don't think that's mentioned in the, in the book at all, really? is it? Yeah. Both uh, Hopkins and Thompson were nominated for Oscars, but like uh, Liam Neeson in Schindler's List from our first episode in this series, Hopkins lost out to Tom Hanks in Philadelphia. And the best actress went to Holly Hunter in the piano. Uh, other cast members were Edward Fox, giving his pretty much usual turn as the uh, Lord Darlington, and Hugh Grant, young Hugh Grant as Reginald Baby Cardinal. Baby Hugh Grant. Yes, indeed. Uh, also an early sighting of Alina Hedy, who became Cersei Lan Lannister in Game of Thrones. And here she's the maid that went, goes off to get married in uh, ways that we disagree about the effect that had on Miss Kenton. Anyway, um, like most know, of Merchant Ivory films, uh, Joe, this is a highly respectful adaptation of the book. But of course, one thing it didn't have it was a pretty central uh, feature of the novel is Stephen's voice. So how on earth um, do you make a, a voice novel, which the remains of the day is really, into a film which doesn't even have a voiceover? Um, how did it get on without it, do you think? 
poorly, to be honest. I mean, no, it's a great film, like all Merchant Ivory films are. But I think the problem with Merchant Ivory productions, if you've ever watched A Room with a View or Howard's End, is that they are essentially period dramas. And this book is not... Well, I suppose it is a period novel in the sense that it's set in a very particular period, but it's sort of... It works between two timelines to dismantle this idea of one place in time being the right one. Whereas Merchant Ivory sort of just reinforced that. I mean, you get a few clips of Stevens motoring here and there and you get his meeting with Miss Kenton, which actually you, you don't get firsthand in the, in the book, the way it's given to you in the film. But you don't get much of his inner life. Like there were scenes that I kind of really... I, I'd already seen the film, but like on rereading the book and then watching the film closely after, there are scenes from the book that I really, really miss from the film so there's a point where Stevens's car runs out of fuel and he has to sleep over in a village he's not expecting it and yeah. obviously it's a very nice car and he's very well dressed because he doesn't want to bring disgrace on Darlington Hall and so he goes into the village and immediately uh, just this married couple mistake him for a gentleman if not a lord and they <laughs> this is hilarious to me but they run out and they tell the entire village so that hordes of people start showing up to talk to this, you know, very high and mighty gentleman. And Stevens just does not tell them that he's only a butler. And it's not until the arrival of a Mr. Dr. Carlyle, who is far better educated, we presume, than Stevens, and, you know, probably sort of middle class, upper middle class, so mm. higher in ranking than than a service worker like Stevens himself, he immediately sees that Stevens is is either a massive con or he's a butler. And only, you know, because he's a decent bloke, confronts Stevens about it the next day. And Stevens says that he feels relief that, you know, someone's finally unmasked him. But I don't know. I, I just think that the great thing about the book is that the Stevens of 1920 or 1930 would have never kept up a ruse like that. He would have immediately said, I am a butler. Whereas the Stevens in the late 1950s is kind of becoming self-actualized enough to exist outside of his service role like he does a pretty good job for several pages discoursing as a gentleman without letting on and you don't get that sense in the film at all it's sort of Anthony Hopkins there's no point at which Anthony Hopkins sort of betrays a kind of sense that Stevens is becoming in any way self-actualized yeah I, it was just missing for me massively the, the what the, the, the idea that Stevens is that Stevens is on a journey that he's thinking about the past that you know like there is a point of progress in the book as he's thinking back on all of this on his way to Miss Kenton that yeah. he's thinking about himself whereas in in the film it's much more like every so often we get a clip of Stevens motoring and then it's sort of suffused with this is another thing about the film the kind of chemistry between Stevens and Miss Kenton is a lot more heightened like the scene where um Miss Kenton tries to see what book Stevens is reading. It's a really toe-curling scene in the film. It's sort of incredibly emotionally heightened and there are violins in the background. And they look at each other with a moment of little love in the old eyes. Yes, they? but in the book, it's literally just Stevens going, oh, well, you have to understand that a butler can never take his uniform off. And so I was not being unreasonable in getting Miss Kenton to get the hell out of my office because it was a matter of principle, you see. Actually, that, this might be a good time to play a little clip, actually, because one of, one of the differences in, in between book and film is there's one bit where 
Miss Kenton is upset and crying. Yeah. Um, and he knows that she's crying behind her door. And in the book, he walks past and, mm. and says he can't quite remember when it, whether it was when news of her, the death of her aunt had come through. Or aunt, I think, for Southerners, in case you think it's some sort of insect involved. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, or whether it was when she'd accepted Mr. Be- Mr. Ben's proposal, which uh, she, she's upset because she actually wanted Mr. Stevens. But either way, he hears her crying behind the door and walks past. But in the film, he goes in and... I think I think this is even by Stephen's standards, surely a bit uh, a, a, a tad on the insensitive side. Let's say, Joe. Miss Kenton. Yes, Mrs. Stevens. Miss Kenton, I've been wanting to tell you. It's the small alcove outside the breakfast room. It's the new girl, of course. But I find it has not been dusted in some time. I'll see to it, Mr. Stevens. Thank you. I knew you would have wanted to be informed, Miss Kenton. The phrase "read the room" does spring to mind there, doesn't it, Joe? <laughs> yeah, but see, that's sort of like this film is great in terms of it really builds on the relationship between Stevens and Miss Kenton, so that the question of why would they like each other is so much less pertinent in this because the, <laughs> these are like really tense, lovely scenes like that. Um, but then on the other hand, I feel like you don't get the sense of character growth that happens in the novel. So on the on the pass, on the on the time passing, I think one one of the differences, as I mentioned, is that in the in the in the book it runs from the early twenties, mm-hmm. um, which gives Lord Darlington a better chance of not just being a straight old Nazi, yeah. but also um, means that a lot more time's passing. So in fact. They look exactly the same, don't they, when they meet in 1956? Maybe in 58 in the film, anyway. Um, so when he says to her, you haven't changed at all, Miss Kenton, in the in the book, that's clearly not quite right. Mm. Uh, but in the film, she hasn't. But the only person who, who changes is um, poor old Mr. Ben, who, who seems to age her husband rather rather uh, alarmingly. Um, and but, but also the other thing, um, the two additional reasons why she might have loved him that the film adds, I think, yeah. are one... Um, that he's quite commanding, quite sort of manly. He's in charge of these things, and you kind of get this sense of no, nope. <laughs> <laughs> not floating your boat, Joe. The other one, I think, you do like... like a stink face into the microphone. <laughs> uh, and, uh... Sorry, Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> no, but he, you know, he, you know, he's he's com- he's commanding, which might appeal to certain certain of the ladies. He's repressed. <laughs> Uh, well, brings me on to n- number two, which actually is, um, I think you might have covered with your girl maths, uh, <laughs> which is that he, he, he's, a, he's a real challenge. <laughs> As I understand it, a woman likes a project, Joe. And, <laughs> and uh, sort of melting this absolutely icy heart. Mm. Uh, I think he can see her sort of going for that as a as a as a challenge more in the film than you can in the book really mm. no? possibly maybe i don't know i I like this detail. it maybe speaks to to your point this detail in the film that um each time we see a shot of mr stevens's uh office there are more and more flowers in it 
so that by maybe about an hour into the film, there just isn't a surface that doesn't have I a vase of flowers oh, on right. it. So, so she wins. it's Miss Kenton bringing him flowers repeatedly. Oh, and him accepting them then, presumably. Well, pre- presumably, or maybe he just can't stop her, <laughs> you know? So maybe we should do the very end. Yes, wait, uh, well, which, like which, book which versus film. Book versus film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is where if anybody does need a spoiler alert or did want a spoiler alert, uh, chop out now and join us again in a few minutes to hear the bit about uh, you can contact us on Twitter. <laughs> I'm sure always, you'll want to hear always that. Always a highlight of any episode. Well, I suppose the film ends on Mr. Stevens finally getting to Devon and we see, I think maybe it's about 15 minutes of the film, him having tea with Miss Kenton and him saying, you know, come back to Darlington Hall and she says, I can't. Um, my daughter's going to have a baby and I've decided to go back to my husband after leaving him for three days, you know, so relatable. And, um, and um, they leave each other at a at a bus stop and Stevens kind of turns to her and he says, well, Miss Kenton, I, we may never see each other again and I want you to love your husband and your daughter and your new grandchild as much as you possibly can. And he motors off and it's sort of, I guess the like um, denouement is basically just that, you know, they won't get together. But it's a bit more complex in the book because something that we haven't mentioned throughout the book is that Mr. Stevens is very concerned with um, what he calls the art of bantering, which is essentially just like being able to carry a conversation like a normal human being. (laughs) It's humour and wit, but also just, I guess. But I do feel bad for him because in the book, there's this point where he 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 tries very hard to be witty and he tries to carry it off at one instance and then he worries for like two nights after that what he thought was funny may have just been really really rude so you know maybe what i'm saying is mr stevens is the og anxiety girly who knows um but the book ends on him talking to a man on a pier um who says that the best bit of the day is the end and stevens says no i've always thought it's the beginning um, and this guy goes, no, no, you you get to reflect on everything. It's really nice. And Stevens goes, maybe I will take this advice. I can't bring Miss Kenton back to Darlington Hall, but maybe what I can do is recommit myself to bantering. And I always took that to mean I can recommit myself to sort of having an inner life, fostering a sense of humour, fostering a sense of, you know, being able to talk to a stranger, which he does still find very awkward at the end of the book. But I suppose it's sort of an ambiguous ending because this might also mean I'm going to recommit myself to learning the art of bantering simply because Mr. Faraday wants me to. So I'm going to keep on deluding myself in an entirely professional way. Either way, though, it's fairly heartbreaking because this realisation comes after he finally admits to us that leaving Miss Kenton behind is breaking his heart. First bit of that, when you say, you know... is he just going back to Mr. Faraday to just be a butler again? Well, yes, he is, obviously. And, yeah. and, but also the, the idea that he's going to be a sort of bantering and jocular fellow from here on in. I wonder if that is a return in a way to self-deception because he's, yeah. he's not going to do it. The, the guy he meets, uh, 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 that he's talking to at one point, the guy at the end of the pier, says to him at one point, here, mate, do you want a hanky? which we realise that he's yeah. crying. It's, oh, God, it's a touching scene, that. But, um, there are many instances, the, actually, the, the, where Stevens cries and yeah. he completely tries to omit it from the narrative. Yeah, yeah he does. Except yeah. he can't omit the fact that someone like Darlington will say, do you need a hanky, yeah, Stevens? Right, you look yeah, like you've been yeah. crying. That's when his father's dying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Mr. Stevens. Uh, and then, the, the, so this guy says, um, here, here, mate, do you want a hanky? But Ishiguro has said that there is a certain dignity in the end in facing up to the fact that you have your life has been a failure and, and 
Jesus. I know. And uh, do we agree with that? I'm not sure even he does. It. Never let me go. There's the main character there ends the book. Uh, still not sure whether it was right to find out things or to just go on believing in things. Yeah. And there's always that. Is it better actually? Is self knowledge a bit overrated? And in fact, <laughs> is it better to just take you know self consoling myths, self deceiving, the consolation of self deceiving myths? But but I think Ish does intend us to think that in the end, his dignity comes from facing up to the fact that his life has been an absolute disaster. Yeah. Whereas in the film, I suppose it's just so much you get you get very very little, if any, of that. It's yeah. just simply a question of will this woman I maybe once loved take me back? <laughs> and, other... and I think actually on, I guess the question we always ask each other is, do we prefer the book or the film? And I'll just like answer up front. I think I much prefer the book for that reason, because it's a much more, it's a much more heartbreaking question in yeah. a way. And it's a much more sort of existentially dreadful one. <laughs> yeah, since you mentioned it, this is this is spoiler alert. So th what's interesting is, um, we'll hear about this in a minute, actually, because we've got a clip. Mm. Ishiguru wasn't sure whether to have Stevens have his armour up all the time or, in fact, to um, just have one moment where it all crumbled. And he went for B with the most interesting source. Which, but he has he has two goes at it. And this is the bit, uh, we, we all read this on One Family Holiday, I remember once, and passed it around, and we all cried at the same sentence. And... Ooh. Well, the same two sentences, and this is it. So he's Miss Kenton spells out in the in the in the book, which she doesn't in the film. She says, "There's sometimes where you think to yourself, what a terrible mistake I've made with my life,' and you get to thinking about a different life, a better life you might have had. For instance, I get to thinking about a life I might have had with you, Mister Stevens. That so uh, that bit isn't in the film, but she, what is in the film is what she says next, which basically it's too late. And then he he has two goes. He has a sort of run up to admitting how sad this made him. I do not think I responded immediately, for it took me a minute or two to fully digest these words of Miss Kenton. And here's his two run ups to it. Moreover, as you might appreciate, their implications were such as to provoke a certain degree of sorrow within me. Indeed, why should I not admit it? At that moment, my heart was breaking. Yeah. And here's where he got it from throughout the entire novel in this first-person narrative. Immaculate English butler who never talks about his emotions. But is it, is it OK for me to go the entire book and finish the book with him like that? Stephen's armour has to crack. We have to be able to see underneath it all somewhere. He desperately loves somebody and desperately wants to be loved. James, key question. Yeah. Book or film? Uh, easy one in his book perfectly great. good film unbelievably great book yeah and that's it for our final The Booker at the Oscars episode on the remains of the day to find out more about Kazuya Ishiguru's novel head to thebookerprizes.com and check the show notes for a handy article which details every Booker Prize book adaptation ever that's on film and TV well and at the time of this recording The Remains of the Day uh, the film is available to view on Netflix so do check it out if you can't I always think it's good to own physical media, you know, buy it on DVD. People don't want you to own things anymore. <laughs> no, 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 call yourself Gen Z. <laughs> and, on, and on that very ideological note, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok and Substack at The Booker Prizes. You can also join our book group on Facebook. And just to say that this podcast is going fortnightly from now on. So we'll see you in two weeks time and every other Thursday from then. Till next time, goodbye. And goodbye from me. The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by me, Joe Hamier, and by James Fulton. 
It is produced and edited by Kevin Moyolo, and the executive producer is John Davenport. It is a Daddy's Super Yacht production for the Booker Prizes.